Welcome to this week's edition of the Aquila Report in Weekly Review. This is Dominic Aquila along with Paul Harrell uh, coming to you with the Aquila Report Top 10 list that uh, comes out each week on Tuesday. And uh, on Monday, Paul Harrell and I meet because we have the list in advance and we go over the top 10 uh, list uh, on Monday. So this is Monday, um, June 26, 2023. And tomorrow in the, your email, you'll receive a copy of the list on hyperlinked and ready to be clicked on so that you can read them. You can forward the email to others uh, and just get some discussion going or just uh, strengthen your own mind in the things that are written. And so it's our delight uh, for Paul and myself to come before you and um, uh, sort of tease the way uh, with these articles, give some information, background, and impressions that we have. So, uh, Paul, we've been offline for a couple of weeks because of travel and General Assembly. So now we're back in our regular schedule. That's exactly right. General Assembly was uh, the experience because it was close to, uh, you know, it was in Memphis. I, I got to go for a, for a day and uh, experience a little bit. So it was uh, very encouraging. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was good to see so many from uh, where you live uh, be there and uh, join us for some uh, good meal uh, for the evening meal together and uh, in a very celebrative time, you know, so uh, it was yes. a delight to have you all there. Okay, Paul, well, why don't you uh, start with reading the top 10 list, starting with 10 to 6. I'll do 5 through 1, and we'll begin our discussion. That sounds good. So number 10, a confession rejected in a denomination undone. This is by Caleb uh, Morell. Uh, we also have Christianity and Progressivism, a pastor's perspective, written by Harry Reader. Uh, then number eight, I'm sorry, so 10, nine, number eight coming in at number eight, Jim Shaw writing PCA elders and members were fools for Christ at the first, uh, annual GA evangelistic outreach. Okay. Number seven, uh, Seth Yee, how should we then repent a response to COVID-19 reflection and coming in at number six thoughts on female deacons written by Joe Gibbons. Okay, then number five, uh, 2023 Orthodox Presbyterian Church General Assembly Report, and it's an update on that. Number four, uh, a retraction refused. This is by Tom uh, Hervey. The PCA's magazine stands by its claim in David Cassidy's prayer and work in the face of violence article. So we'll continue that discussion. And number four, uh, number three, a political view of the PCA Jubilee General Assembly. This uh, op-ed piece by Larry Ball. Uh, number two, a report of the PCA's Jubilee, that's the 50th anniversary, uh, assembly by Jason uh, Ryan Beasy. And then number one, is um, a, the PCHGA 50 summary of 20 key events and highlights this by ruling elder uh, Kevin Miller and then teaching elder George uh, Sayer, uh, both from the same church, uh, the Meadowview Church at PCA in uh, Lexington, uh, North Carolina. So we start with that number one. And by the way, just as a reminder, these are articles that are posted already on the Aquila Report. And then the readers, uh, as they read them and by, they, by the number comes views and clicks that come, uh, that's how we determine the 10. So this is not just 10 that we pick out of some other 
uh, item that comes off of the Quill Report. So remember, you can go uh, every day. Uh, eight articles are published, and uh, as you click through them, that uh, gives our analytics opportunity to find out what's going to be number one through number 10. But anyway, number one then, the PCAGA 50. That is, that's its 50th birthday. The Presbyterian Church in America uh, just completed its Jubilee Assembly in Memphis, Tennessee. This 50th General Assembly on this 50th anniversary year was a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, body-edifying time, to say the least. Uh, it was a week uh, full of the joy of the Lord in our worship and work, and the week flew by as we reconnected with old friends and made new ones. So this is written by both the ruling elder Kevin uh, Miller, as well as teaching elder George Sayer from the same uh, church in Lexington, uh, North Carolina. And they decided as they went through that there are at least uh, 20 significant uh, things that they highlight. And there probably were others that others come up with, but it's usually nice to have an enumeration. And they start out with, for instance, the election of uh, teaching elder Fred Greco, pastor of the Christ uh, Presbyterian Church, PCA, in uh, Katy, Texas. It's a suburb of Houston. Uh, so he was elected as moderator. Number two was abuse victim protection provisions from last year's overture passed uh, the Presbyterians by a 77 to 3 vote and just nearly unanimously by the PCA General Assembly. Basically, it was a report from last year and some uh, uh, changes uh, that were made to the uh, Book of Church Order, which required two-thirds vote of the uh, presbyteries. And so it did pass that. Uh, 77 voted in favor, three against. Uh, the victims of abuse don't have to testify in the presence of their abuser. Is So that's added now to the Book of Church Order. Uh, also left over from last year's assembly, an overture that was carried over, qualifications for church office, passed the presbyteries, uh, by a 79 to 1 vote and uh, terms of uh, the implications and officer's view of indwelling sin, actual sin and sanctification really matter. Uh, this is um, the uh, part of the those re, uh, set of revoice amendments uh, that have been circulating uh, through the General Assembly and then being sent down to journals uh, to the presbyteries for vote. And this has been happening over the last couple, three years. And now we've seen them coming together. And just as a note, um, the uh, one uh, uh, one of uh, the a new one more overture is coming down to the General Assembly it was passed by about 88 percent vote of General Assembly. Um, just some other uh, things here um, that. Uh, we have the RUF affiliate, affiliation agreement was uh, flagged because it was not approved by General Assembly. Here was uh, Reform University ministry, a significant part of the uh, ministry outreach in our universities and colleges around here, not only um, in the U.S., but we have the Reformed University International as well, working with international students and also global, which is reaching outside of the boundaries of the uh, North America. And so there was an, they always work out an agreement with each presbytery and they uh, RUF committee had voted uh, a changed affiliation agreement and were presenting it to presbyteries to accept. And but uh, that was without the approval of uh, General Assembly. So the General Assembly 
indicated that they had to rework it and bring it to General Assembly uh, next year for approval before they can present it to the presbyteries. Um, the uh, just other things that were there, hopefully you will read this so you get a good overview. Uh, there was also an Overture 12, which was approved, uh, which was condemning a practice of surgical and medical gender reassignment. And it would be a statement from the General Assembly to our political leaders, uh, president, uh, leaders of Congress in the states, it would be to governors and mayors and legislators and so forth, uh, just as a declaration of concern on the part of the PCA with regard to uh, this movement that seems to be growing of uh, medical gender reassignment for youth, any under minors, especially under uh, 18. So there was con there's been concern about this, the implications of it. And so um, there, this is just a request um, uh, concerned for the ethical uh, manner in which it is done a lot of times without parents knowing about it. Um, and it's just uh, something that's, uh, the dis that is called dysphoria has seemed like it's reached epidemic proportions. So um, there are other items like this that just give you a quick summary uh, that um, you can read. And then there are hyperlinks to the event so you can actually read the statements themselves. So uh, I can see why it was number one, Paul, because it gave a broad overview of things that happened at the, the 50th. Uh, General Assembly of the PCA. Yeah, you know, and um, you you skipped uh, what I thought was one of the most interesting back and forths, uh, which was the number six here. The Metro New York Presbytery was referred to the SJC for allowing women to preach. That this was a very uh, uh, interesting debate because it seems that there was a you know a, a push to say, hey, may, maybe not yet. Give us some more time. We're going to work through this. And and the assembly said, no, uh, you know, this is something. Uh, that needs to be addressed. Uh, our system works. Women preachers are not allowed at worship services. That's what uh, the summary here says under under number six. And so uh, that was interesting. Also, uh, you know, Fred Greco being uh, nominated, uh, you know, or, or being put on as the moderator was it was interesting. And, you know, he's an Italian. Dominic, you're Italian. You guys even you know, had a, had a mild disagreement from the floor that I that I thought was uh, handled handled nicely. You that's guys right. had some rapport. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We didn't break any knees either. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. That was a, a, the families are at peace. That's right. It, and it started. It was at the very beginning of the assembly, so it gave us the opportunity to have a little jocularity in the, the process. That was good um, on that. Yeah, because. Uh, I was moderator in 2006, and uh, Fred is moderator here in uh, the 50th, uh, 2023. So, yeah, it was good to um, loop those uh, around, uh, those non-Scottish names that were very prominent now. <laughs> okay, well, good. Well, that'll help you, too. But then next, we have another report, this one from Pastor Ryan Beasy, pastor of First Presbyterian Church, Oglethorpe, Georgia. And uh, he gives more of a uh, descriptive uh, didactic instead of choosing just uh, the, let's say, top 20. Uh, so he starts out with the opening worship and election of moderator and gives some background on that. So there's more you can read uh, about how uh, Fred Greco was appoint, elected. Uh, selected overtures. He talks about overture seven again, This uh, or actually first time I should 
mentioned. Overture 7 dealt with accountability for the Atlanta staff and permanent committees. Uh, throughout their history, there has been a tension in the PCA between a grassroots nomination and a centralized denomination so that most of the committees and agency are located uh, in one a uh, couple of office buildings in Lawrenceville, Georgia, just north of Atlanta. And uh, the question is, uh, how do how does a grassroots church give oversight and count and hold committees accountable? And so at uh, at, I think it's at 50. It's a good thing that uh, was come up, uh, came up. And so there was an uh, amendment to the rules of assembly operation that uh, just sort of tightens that in terms of what this uh, really uh, means. So it just gives uh, more hands on accountability from the General Assembly to the committees and agencies of the PCA. Um, the was a large debate and probably, Paul, the one that created uh, or had the most debate uh, more people wanted to speak to it than um, i think just any about any of the others and all of them were you know almost all the overtures were significant but overture 13 dealt with who can testify at church court uh, trials uh, right now bco chapter 35 uh lists those people with the who can um or uh, eligible to serve as witnesses and basically it's very simple they have to at least be able to believe in a triune God, or at least affirm that there is a triune God, and a couple of other stipulations such as that, and and uh, so the there was a overture 13 was asking that we broaden that so that it would allow anyone to testify in terms in a church court if they could be perceived to be credible witnesses, and so it was just broadening the ability to do that. And uh, as Ryan Beasley states here, the longest debate in the assembly concerned over whether to admit atheists as witnesses in the church courts. The BCA Constitution currently permits only people who acknowledge belief in God as well as rewards and punishment after death to give testimony in the PCA courts. The Constitution does not prohibit unbelievers, um, non-believers, or spiritualists from giving testimony in church. It only disqualifies atheists. So the question was, is this appropriate? Can we expand that horizon? And uh, so Brian Beasy has an explanation here, and it gives also a number of um, links to the video where speeches were being made in that regard. Uh, this was a very close vote, uh, but the uh, Overture 13 was not approved uh, to be sent down to the presbyteries. And you could follow the, the debate because it's all uh, summarized uh, well in uh, what uh, Pastor Breezy brings up here. Uh, there also was one more, as I said, uh, overture that dealt with, as he likes to put, overture 23, chastity for church officers. And since uh, 2018, the PCA's assembly uh, GAs have been met with a cloud of revoice hanging over them, and the 50th Assembly overwhelmingly passed an amendment to clarify the chastity of sexual purity required of officers. It says he should conform to the biblical requirements of chastity, sexual purity, and his description of himself, his convictions, character, and conduct. And so that uh, will, in essence, probably be the um, last uh, overture that we'll see in this area because each one that has passed already added 
some definition in different categories and this adds one more category that probably completes it. I, I'm saying probably because I never know what might come around the uh, corner. So that's a really interesting one. It, like I said, it passed by an 88.2% uh, vote of the General Assembly, which I think portends that it should be adopted by at least two thirds of the um, General Assembly. So uh, anyway, this is a good overview that uh, Ryan Beasy gives us and some of the uh, details goes into explaining it very carefully and very briefly enough so that uh, if you can't go and listen to some of the speeches that he highlights, uh, you know, links here, then you can uh, at least be aware of what took place in this General Assembly. And I like how he writes, this is a matter of Thanksgiving, considering uh, over over 23 and how there was only one speech, you know, given. And then there was a vote to limit the, the lim basically limit debate and just get to the vote because everybody I mean, this this issue has been debated, you know, since 2018 back and forth. And it looks like that the consensus uh, was that, hey, this is the best wording and language to address this. Uh, and he says uh, revoice. Let's see this. Uh, this amendment is ratified by the PCA uh, Presbyteries, or if this amendment is ratified by PCA Presbyteries, it should make the PCA entirely inhospitable to the St. Louis theology. I found that interesting. Yes, and he, he would use that uh, St. Louis theology. That was the sort of ground zero for the um, debate that uh, took place since uh, 2018 um, in uh, our General Assemblies. Okay, well, number three continues this uh, same uh, trend, only this time instead of being a report of and an overview of what took place there, we have uh, a more uh, an opinion piece, a political view of the PCA Jubilee General Assembly. Uh, <clears throat> so Larry Ball, uh, retired PCA minister living in the Tri-Cities area of uh, Northeast Tennessee, um, writes that another critical issue that was related to the use of the term well actually now let me i'll come back to that one on my facebook page says i really refer to the 50th general assembly of the Presbyterian church in america as a silent coup d'etat i realize that for some folks this language would be considered too strong but i believe it is fitting as a commissioner this year to the jn memphis and as a founding father who attended the original general assembly in 1973 I believe the use of the term is appropriate. So Wizzy goes on to say in this um, editorial is that the church appeared to become more self-consciously uh, conservative or confessional as opposed to uh, leaning more uh, in some progressive ways. Uh, in short, almost every vote in the General Assembly this year was won by the conservatives or confessionalists and that by a large margin. And that's one reason for the use of my strong term seems like for years now we have been losing that we being the confessional side but things dramatically changed this year uh, for instance he says uh, progressive churches are always uh, pushing the envelope and trying to put women in the pulpit such was the case recently when a woman ascended to the pulpit in a worship service in a church in metro new york presbytery uh, it was called a bible study and not a sermon even though it was a worship service with the sacrament of the lord's supper being celebrated at the end of the service. And the assembly voted overwhelmingly uh, to send this matter to the Standing Judicial Commission to hold the church and the Presbyterian accountable for their actions. And this will now pass the test, a test case onto the SJC. Hopefully they will hold uh, the line on women preaching in our pulpits. 
uh, the side B homosexuality issue was also raised, as he said, and he and Larry is pleased with the direction that has taken. Um, so you can just read this uh, for uh, yourself in terms of the things that um, he counts as important. And of course, being that uh, he has been around for the last 50, uh, the 40, the 49 General Assemblies before this, and now here at the 50th. Uh, it's uh, it's a helpful perspective because he was there from the beginning and can see where what has happened in this period of time. So we appreciate Larry giving his overview as um, in this. And we already mentioned this, but he writes, the assembly adopted the recommendation that the PCA stated clerk send a letter to the president of the United States and the other civil magistrates, including letters from presbytery clerks to governors protesting the surgical mutilation of children and what has become described as gender-affirming care, somewhat contrary to the PCA's own doctrine of the uh, spirituality of the church, I was glad to see the assembly do this with an overwhelming vote. The political-spiritual divide has hampered the church since the Civil War, but boldness on major political issues is the need of the day. Church leaders can no longer close themselves off in a uh, uh, monastic life and avoid the cultural issues facing us in this nation. One commissioner from Canada, I assume, requested that the letter be sent to the political leaders of Canada also. Um, I believe a Canadian presbytery could do this. Anyway, I thought that was uh, really interesting. I mean, because we really are in the face of, um, you know, they call it gender affirming care, Dominic. And it's it is so it's such an evil way to characterize it because the gender affirming care is literally removing parts of your body that, uh, you know, enable us to distinguish gender. And so right. it's, the, it's really just the complete opposite and it's calling good evil and evil good really. So exactly. And uh, we should also say that, and I think it's in one of those, um, the reports that we just already reviewed that the general assembly um, did something it really ever does. And when we're going to send a, such an important document uh, to outside of the church, not just speak to ourselves, but to the uh, culture in general and to political leaders. Uh, and that is they appointed a commission to take the, the wording that was already there and just, you know, craft it or uh, sharpen it up, uh, edit it to so that we we don't do it as a, as a whole, you know, General Assembly probably would have gone forever if we'd done that. And they entrusted the moderator then to appoint a commission that will finish it up and then make sure it gets out. So you'll we'll see uh, something here soon uh, coming from that uh, commission that's appointed by the moderator. Okay, well, number four moves us in a different direction a little bit. Uh, Tom Hervey uh, wrote an article, um, it, what he says, a previous article, he re responded to a claim published in the denominational magazine of the PCA uh, by faith, the official magazine that to say that, which uh, stated that, uh, th and this was an opinion piece that was there, uh, gun violence is the leading cause of death among children in the nation. And that phrase that gun violence is the leading cause of death among children in the nation um, sort of prompted, not sort of, it prompted Tom Hurry originally to write an, an article rebutting that saying that's not if you look at the statistics correctly um, and well from all the the regular sources that are available that can be trusted um, that are trustworthy already, uh, it, that's not true. To say it's the leading 
cause. And this came as a result of the uh, some you know shooting in another uh, school. So all he was asking is if this is the case, if the documentation that uh, was uh, presented here is true, then to use the phrase that gun violence is the leading cause of death among children, that is not a true statement. And he uh, made his case and he asked the uh, denomination magazine to, uh, you know, fix that or repair it, remove it or to add, you know, more information as he proposed in his original letter. And uh, there was a response from the editor that was uh, public, made public. And so he responded to that. So this is once it's the third email uh, or article that uh, Tom Hervey has uh, written on it. And that's the reason he says it's the PCA's magazine stands by its own claim on in David Cadice's article, which is prayer and the work and uh, prayer and work in the face of violence. So in this, he makes one more attempt just to say, um, let's, you know, hear the facts. Uh, this is what I said. To, uh, provides more information. And uh, then I think probably just leave it there to um, determine, let readers uh, read, let the uh, editorial staff on By Faith check it out, how they want to do it. Uh, but, I uh, you know, that's, he, he's made his point. And he'll move on and we'll see what happens. You know, it's a shame that they're not willing to retract it. Uh, it's basically, uh, you know, an example of, uh, you know, people are accepting the, uh, the, the, the liberal progressive uh, presuppositions that are just not based on the facts. Uh, he writes, as of this writing, by faith has not retracted the original claim. However, uh, their reason, uh, per the response to my complaint, some of their leadership, they maintain the original claims accuracy about gun deaths in children. Uh, quote, they appeal to a study uh, by the New England Journal of Medicine that discusses how, quote, firearm related deaths are the leading cause of death among children and adolescents. A group so that that group children and adolescents is a group that the, the study defines as persons one to 19 years of age. Uh, Hervey says this is an insufficient defense. Problem one is that infants under the age of one are children and that 18 and 19 year old adults are not. To give an idea of how much this statistical sleight of hand skews the results, consider that infants under one accounted for about 56 percent of child deaths in 2020, while 18 and 19 year olds had more firearm homicide deaths between them than the entire zero to 17 age group and nearly as many suicides. One can only claim that firearm related deaths were the leading cause of death among children and adolescents in 2020 by denying the majority of child deaths. In other words, and by also including many adults of an age particularly prone to criminal violence and self-harm. Tom Hervey exposing once again from another angle the uh just the inaccuracy of of by faith's uh, article here and it's a, it's a shame that they they won't retract it but you know he's done a good thing calling them out on it and i think that's uh, certainly admirable it is okay number five now takes us to the orthodox presbyterian church and they had their 89th general assembly uh june 7 through 13 at trinity a meeting at trinity christian college in palos heights uh, illinois uh, the 
says for the election of a new moderator, the following would nominate Reverend Bruce uh, Prentice from Mandan, North Dakota, Elder Bruce Stahl from uh, Wentzville, uh, Missouri, and then the Reverend John Shaw, the General Secretary of the OPC Home Missions. After a vote, Mr. Shaw was declared elected. Uh, so he was the one who then led the uh, General Assembly through the uh, week of their meetings. Uh, and it's put out, produced here. So if, day by day, uh, this is there um, written by a reporter on the scene, uh, elder um, from uh, South Dakota. So uh, if you want to see the kinds of things they took up uh, they uh, with their ministry, um, both in the U.S. and around the world, uh, this is a very good summary of the uh, OPC General Assembly. So it, there's a lot here as you scan it to just read uh, very quickly. So um, we uh, just commend it to you. I also, we, I am part of the we, we commend it to you. <laughs> okay, good, okay. All right, number six, uh, Thoughts on Female Deacons by Joe Gibbons. Uh, this has been an uh, issue that uh, is stirred in the uh, life of the church, especially those that are part of the North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council. That's sometimes the shorthand phrase is NAPARC, uh, National Association of Presbyterian and Reformed uh, Council. Um, is, and he, uh, Joe Gibbons here says, I reviewed the 2019 General Synod of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church this week, I was struck by what I thought of as a somewhat nebulous argumentation on the part of those who spoke in favor of retaining their denomination status quo. Since 1972, the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, former government has allowed local sessions the freedom to choose whether or not to ordain women to diac their diaconate. Some estimates place the number of churches that ordained women as deacons is accounting for roughly a quarter of the ARP. So with that backdrop, the ARP has been rethinking this and whether or not to amend their book of order uh, to remove the, uh, what, what they approved back in 1972. And they're still um, debating that. And they had a report that came for the, uh, that general assembly of the ARP and uh, they're continuing the discussion. So in this article, Joe Gibbons just talks about, it presents at least uh, two or so of their um, main, or three of their main arguments uh, to of those, and then refutes them of what people would hold to with regard to the role women being in de role of deacons. Uh, the non-authoritative role, for instance, the argument goes something like this, he says, uh, deacons do not exercise authority, so therefore, 1 Timothy 2.12 does not apply uh, to deacons, and as a result, the diaconate should be open to women. Uh, he says this stance is incorrect. The deacons do exercise authority. God in his providence showed the early church that the physical needs of the body should not fall into the on the elders' shoulders alone. And so seven men were chosen from among the people, and these men were granted authority from the apostles and elders to perform acts of service, ministry in the name of the church. As is shown in the early church account in Acts 6, this responsibility to care for the physically needy originally lay on the elders. The PCA's book of church order states, in the discharge of their duties, the deacons are under the supervision and authority of the session. 
in a church which is impossible for uh, any reason to secure deacons, the duties of office shall devolve upon the ruling elders, as found in BCO chapter 9. So what he says is so deacons are delegate, have delegated authority in their ministry of charity, and the elders do not entrust uh, do not entrust the financial matters of the church, uh, de- uh, de- delegate ministry, uh, mercy ministries, or upkeep of church uh, property uh, to the to members at large. No, these are responsibilities that are given to the deacon. So it, he goes on with that. I won't read those other two. The article is very clear in itself as to why the PCA has uh, forward, and most of the NAPARC churches have also. Uh, said that uh, even the office of deacon has authority in it. It has integrity in and of itself in terms of what God intended and therefore makes the argument that uh, women are not to be elder, uh, female um, uh, deacons, that they're, uh, he does eval- state very clearly that they have a role in the life of the church, but not just in authoritative ordination office. Yeah, you know, very good uh, article uh, sums it up uh, very nicely. I find it interesting that you do have, you know, a lot of different. uh, We've talked about this before, Dominic, a lot of different uh, denominations seem to be uh, arguing uh, or debating rather over the same the same issues. It comes down to the sufficiency of Scripture. But, you know, it's all it's really just culturally it's, you know, offensive to to not uh, have, you know, equality. Uh, and that sort of thing. And so uh, we're seeing all of these denominations essentially having to deal with the same issues. It is. And, and uh, there's there are articles up uh, also since the same week that the General, PCA General Assembly was meeting, the Southern Baptist Convention was also meeting and dealing with this matter, and uh, especially with ordaining women as uh, pastors, uh, which was, there was, uh, as we'll see in an article coming up here was uh, mission expansion and not just mission creep that um, the more more Southern Baptist local churches were moving in that direction. And now the Southern Baptist Convention has changed. So there's been a lot of uh, debate in this whole area of the what ordination means and how male and female fit into that category. Yeah, and so you mentioned the Southern Baptists. It's also, uh, you know, the the Catholics as well are are having this uh, debate yeah. as well. I saw where the the Pope is tr- is giving women a vote alongside bishops in some sort of synod on synodality, and it's supposed to, but it, it's being stacked full of liberals and and you know, and they're talking about LGBTQ hospitality, and even listen to this. This is in a document I read online. Even they're they're even trying to reach out. Uh, to uh, people who are in polygamous marriages, and uh, anyway, it's it's a it's a big it's a big mess. So it is. Well, it's a good article by uh, Gibbons, and uh, you, I think it'll um, be helpful in just trying to understand some of the debate that's going on. Okay, number uh, six is how should we then repent? A response to COVID nineteen reflection. Uh, this is by Seth Yee, who is a minister in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, and he's reflecting on the article written by uh, Peter Van Dudewaard. We spoke about Paul a couple weeks ago, where this was, again, an editorial piece by uh, Peter, um, who was a pastor in South Carolina, PCA pastor in South Carolina, in which he talks about COVID-19 reflection. 
looking back on this, so you and I did have this uh, discussion back then with that article. It's hyperlinked here, so if you missed it, you'd be able to read it. Seth Yee's coming along, and he is basically agreeing with uh, the proposition that uh, was in that article and just pressing it a little bit further. Uh, he says that um, Van Dudewaard uh, concluded his article by saying, we we touched holy things, and this requires humble reflection. Maybe your next leadership meeting ought to take time for prayerful reflection on actions taken, followed by some honest communication with your congregation. And may God help us uh, in this work of reflection to give us true repentance where needed, and by this renew renew our commitment to public worship and his uh, holy name. So these words convey, Sathi in this article now says, a deep conviction that I have about the necessary response of church leaders as a Presbyterian minister, I'll refer to elders in sessions as the leaders of the congregation, who participated in the actions noted by uh, Van Dudewaard, uh, which you can read in his article. And um, he says that especially sessions of Presbyterian congregations need to evaluate their actions and respond biblically in light of the truth that has been manifested. So what do you say is uh, now that we're past COVID-19, we and the more time passes, the more reflection we can make, uh, see did we act correctly or did we could we have taken other kinds of actions? Uh, he says, for instance, I'm convinced, especially with the truth, that has been confirmed by the overwhelming weight of epistemological research. That is, uh, uh, I mean, excuse me, epidemiology, uh, the study of the science. You know, looking at the 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 the, the virus issue with uh, COVID-19, that church leaders acted simply by shutting down weekly public corporate worship. Uh, they usurped an authority uh, that. Uh, that did not, does not, and will never come under their or the state's jurisdiction. The worship of God is governed by the Lord Almighty himself and his word alone and authority over the frequency and orderliness of corporate worship. Any session prevented willing members from the opportunity to worship corporately on the Lord's day ruled and acted on matters that were way above their pay grade. They stood on holy ground without removing their sandals. They enforce actions that cause little ones to sin by preventing them to come uh, into the house of the Lord to offer worship that is due his name. They abused their God's ordained authority by prohibiting corporate worship rather than promoting it. So it, that's a strong uh, statement that uh, Pastor Yi uh, makes here, and he goes on and supports that principle as he goes through this article. Um, Paul, we, when we dealt with uh, the original article by Peter Van de Ward, um, we, we made some uh, strong comments because we all during the COVID time and right as it was coming to its end, we were talking about the, the, the clash of authorities here, the, what authority God has given to the church and what he's given to the state and how they interact. And, um, we, um, as a general rule, said that we weren't happy with how uh, churches tended to respond to things. So here's sort of another after-action review uh, in the reflection by Pastor Yee. Yeah, and, and calling for basically just public admission and a confession of of what what was done. And I think that is a really healthy thing. And I think that'd be a, that'd go a long way with a lot of uh, a lot of lay people who 
again, just didn't understand this. That, that, that This happened really all across the country and denominations all across the country where, uh, you know, it's it's like the many people just think the leaders and the lay people were just on totally two different wavelengths. And I'm not saying there weren't, you know, ministers that kept their church open. There were. And I'm not saying there weren't, you know, lay people that didn't want to come to church. That that obviously happened. Uh, but after, you know, uh, the first couple of weeks, it, you know, to me and to a lot of people that I know, it was obvious, hey, look, we've, we've got to open. And and yet uh, a lot of that wasn't happening. Um, I have heard, though, that churches that did open, uh, they they saw their numbers and, and, and are still experiencing the benefit of the growth of the people because the, the other churches in their community were shut down. So they wanted to go somewhere and worship. I, and I think it's applicable here to quote the the basically in a way, the millstone verse here, uh, which is really directed at uh, the disciples and when G- when Jesus is ta- telling them, hey, uh, don't uh, cause these little ones to stumble, uh, you know, in Matthew and Mark. Um, he goes on and he says, one of the most obvious perversions of this ecclesiastical overreach was the administration of virtual communion. And then he talks about in the next paragraph, regardless of the uncertainties and fear that surround COVID-19, I, I when I, when I was at GA Dominic, I talked to people. I met a uh, met some people from another church in the Presbytery, and it was it was great to talk to them. But they also, you know, experienced the closure that they disagreed with, and 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 we kind of talked about everybody was so afraid. It seemed like that this fear of dying uh, kind of paralyzed us, uh, a lot of us, regardless of the uncertainties and fears that surround COVID-19, the unequivocal teaching of Scripture, remember and observe the Sabbath to keep it holy, Exodus 28, Deuteronomy 5.12, Hebrews 10.25, should never have been overruled by circumstantial, circumstantial reasoning, love your neighbor, or submit to the governing authorities based on less relevant scriptures. We must allow the more clear and more applicable passages of scripture to be our guide over the less clear and less applicable passages of scripture. And so that's what we heard a lot. You know, wear a mask, Mm -hmm. don't go to church, love your neighbor as yourself, submit to governing authorities. When in reality, and I've said this before, this is my opinion. I'll just say my opinion. It was the state and local governments that were in violation of a verse like Romans 13 because they were telling us to do things they simply did not have the authority to do on paper. So that's it. And well, this is the good. I mean, once the benefit of going through a downtime or crisis or a tense moment or time gives you know, is a is a teaching moment, uh, a reflective moment. So it is also an opportunity for repentance if that's where you arrive. Uh, so that uh, my sense is, and I think I've said this to you before, and I think I've said it here in our podcast before, that given what we've been through and how we went through it, I don't believe that something should, like something similar to this should happen again. I don't think we'll have the same uh, universal, almost universal response that we had uh, uh, for COVID-19. I think there will be a little bit more pushback, more sense for data, more, uh, you know, reasoned and reasonable uh, um, responses. And there's so many other uh, ways that uh, we could have responded uh, that were not given. Uh, it was a one-size-fits-all, and that's what really crushed a lot. So, I, so it's a, you know, out of it, God's going to bring a lot of good, uh, and he already has. Uh, and I've seen I've seen that in sort of anecdotal um, illustrations of that. 
I agree with you 100%. There yeah. has been a lot of good that that came out of it. Yeah. For sure. And it is it's a lot it's a learning experience for us um in that. Okay, number 8. Uh this one is uh, really cherry. Go back to the PCA General Assembly, but it took something that outside of the hall of the uh, convention hall where the uh, PCA met. Uh, it says PCA elders and members were quote fools for Christ close quote at the first annual GA evangelistic outreach. Uh, so here's a report sharing the good news of the gospel on Beale Street during the PCA General Assembly. Uh, so those of you who are familiar with uh, any of the history of Memphis know that Beale Street is sort of the center of a lot of the development of the blues and jazz and other kinds of uh, music. Um, of course, is where Elvis found his way in terms of music. It was just a, it was a town uh, comparable to New Orleans, uh, where a lot of uh, things were happening in development of music that it affected rock and roll and so many many other things. Anyway, so it's now a big tourist area and attraction, uh, a lot of uh, curio shots and um, uh, restaurants and music and so forth that's flowing. So uh, one some. Uh, Ministers before the General Assembly got together and we ran an article on it. The Quiller Report uh, invited um, the elders that were coming to meet up at some point and have a on, you know, just go down up and down the street on Beale Street and just talk with people, uh, hand out uh, tracks that were given to them and have just common, very simple conversations as people were going about their life. And so here's a report. It says there were some curious glances, smirks, and even comments uh, made by passersby, witnessed a group of Presbyterian in America, ruling elders and teaching elders, and some of their family members taking the Apostle Paul's example to heart and uh, placarding the the, uh, gospel before others, um, placarding, I should say, uh, not fearing to be seen as fools for Christ. So there were a number of people that were mentioned who were there. There's a little photo there, of a couple of uh, ministers and elders uh, talking with someone on the side of the road. Uh, and uh, so the the point was, is that it said, if we're going to come here, we're just because we're here for the business of the assembly doesn't mean that during a good break time that we can't also uh, share the, the good news, especially in a, you know, place that's well re- renowned and it's right there outside the convention hall. So um, they call it uh, tongue in cheek, but I think they mean it is that this was called the first annual GA evangelistic outreach. And so next year will be the second annual. We'll be meeting in Richmond, Virginia. And so they said uh, here, um, that we uh, did learn some lessons that will help us prepare for the logistics for times, places, and transportation and such when the GA meets next year in Richmond. So it says, plan on joining us. Uh, In the meantime, you may want to practice by planning your own witness opportunities in your own community. So that's a great pool. If you can do it just for a special event like General Assembly, well, why not make it a special event in your community uh, where it, it's uh, possible to have those kinds of interactions uh, in a positive way in the community. So uh, this is a good outreach, uh, well done ministry being taken even to General Assembly. I like it. Yeah, and it says if I uh, I have uh, I've been to many outreach events, I have yet to see one this productive. Many people seem truly moved by the conversations they had with those with whom they shared the good news. If it weren't for a scheduled meeting at GA, 
We're convinced these witnesses would have been out there for another hour or more. And I think it will be longer. And they they did. Uh, I got a report personally uh, from some of those that planned it. Uh, Jim Shaw, uh, Pastor Shaw, wrote that article and was also involved in its uh, planning. So uh, he told me that uh, that would be the case. And uh, they would, you know, they're going to they've learned a lot about what they can do since it was sort of planned a couple of weeks before General Assembly, you know, now now they've got something under their uh, feet so they can prepare better for next year. So uh, plan on being a part of that. If you can, you will make sure you get some publicity through the Aquila report. Okay, number nine, Christianity and progressivism, a pastor's perspective. This is by Harry Reader, who, of course, is, as we all know, has been called home to glory. And uh, this is appears in the Westminster magazine. And um, the here he is talking about the just the church. He says, um, you know, the how do we engage uh, in the world? Because our tendencies to either um, be stodgy and distant from the world or thinking the other side would be, no, we have to be progressive and get engaged the world at its level and adjust our thinking. And so he's trying to give a little perspective. He says, we are venerable evangelical reformed institutions systematically departing. Why, he says, why are they systematically departing from theological fidelity, embracing new mission objectives? It seems to be happening in a similar fashion in churches, colleges, seminaries, publishing houses, parachurch organizations, and historically reliable mission agencies. Why uh, is there a steady stream of well-known evangelical and reformed leaders uh, either denying uh, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints and publicly destructing, deconstructing their faith? Why are the first order of biblical doctrines, including the gospel itself, which is the first uh, thing, uh, first of first things, being adulterated or abandoned for theological novelties that inevitably result in heresies? Uh, why are professing evangelical and reformed ministries embracing, celebrating, and propagating gospel heresies such as the prosperity gospel, the therapeutic gospel, the pragmatic church growth gospel, and the newly renovated uh, the social gospel? Why are unbiblical gospel denying political and social ideologies being quoted and implemented from pulpit ministries and discipleship strategies? So that's quite a mouthful and quite a statement by Pastor Reader. And so uh, he looks at it from a historical, I mean, biblical as well as historical perspective. Uh, and so he says, uh, what we drive from he says, as I've taken time for renewal because of ministry exhaustion and to reflect because of increasing ministerial bewilderment, two observations have become obvious, which in turn lead to a decisive conclusion. The first, uh, the content and the focus of identifi identifiable theological and missional poison fruit was obvious. It consisted uh, it consistently manifested itself in the theological and missional adulteration of the gospel message and the renovation of the gospel mission for Christ church. What was so, not so obvious was the poisonous root and source of that poisonous fruit. And then secondly, over the last two decades, uh, I have found myself increasingly uh, recommending J. Gresham Machen's 
uh, Christianity and liberalism. And by the way, that was just written 100 years ago this year. Uh, this year, yeah, uh, uh, in, in 1923, even though no one is increasingly confused in the orbit of the evangelical Christianity, seem to be uh, promoting the radical 19th century theological renovation now known as just classical liberal theology. Yet not only was Machen's Christianity and liberalism helpful uh, to me in the current uh, context, but it also observed helpful to any and all I recommend that you actively read it. We've already talked about this, Paul, as you know, in a number of other articles uh, uh, that were celebrating the 100th anniversary of uh, Machen's work. So in the conclusions I contemplated these things, it, uh, they became these things became clear. The poisonous root that has produced theological apostasy beginning with the gospel itself and the missional confusion that follows after that is the 60-year-old movement that calls itself progressive Christianity, a movement which has been and I continue to be aimed and continues to be aimed at defining mission of the evangelical and reformed church as well as the message when progressive Christianity in its 60-year evolution uh, is held under the microscope of reason why uh, microscope, the reason why Machen's Christian liberalism feels so relevant becomes obvious. And even though the doctrinal errors and heresies of liberal Christianity are distinct from the over evolving, ever evolving errors and heresies of progressive Christianity, it becomes undeniable that progressive Christianity is, quote, cut from the same bolt of cloth as liberal Christianity. Both ultimately embrace the fabric of theological and missional renovation, and therefore inevitably embrace the theological and missional apostasy. So, and this article then goes on to speak, uh, handle each one of those in uh, good detail. It's a good, it's a long article. And so he's, uh, it's a real challenge to uh, the need for uh, take, um, you know, staying firm uh, in, in, the, in the truth of the um uh, of the gospel so uh, it, it's a very helpful article one that uh, you want to read soberly carefully read with others take to your uh, session your uh, bible study in small groups i think you'll find uh what uh dr reader has to say here very helpful uh, i like uh contextualization um this is towards the end of the article life takeaways he says, progressive Christianity thrives on a misuse of the biblical call to contextualize the message and ministry of the gospel. Yes, to be faithful and effective, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. But biblical contextualization is speaking in the terms the world understands while refusing to speak only on the terms it demands. <laughs> I thought that was really good. Yes. Well, you know, Paul, in that regard, I just need to slip over to number 10 because uh, there's this other article by Caleb Morrell, uh, a confession rejected and a denomination undone. Uh, this is an article out of World Magazine. Have we learned anything from the Northern Baptist debacle 100 years ago? And it's in the same uh, field and genre as the Harry Reader was just talking about in his article, which is more an overview. And this is uh, specifically looking at 
its effect in the uh, Northern Baptist um, Association. It says, 100 years ago, the nation was gripped by an antagonizing struggle over whether or not the Baptist Convention had the authority to disfellowship a church for doctrinal drift. The church in question was the most famous in America, home to the Rockefeller family and pastored by one of America's most influential pastors, the brilliant and eloquent Harry Emerson Fosdick. How the Northern and Southern Baptist conventions responded differently to questions of confessionalism and dissent determined their trajectory for the next century. It's an amazing quote, a statement, isn't it? The question is, have we learned from their mistakes or are we doomed to repeat them? In 1925, the famous Park Avenue Baptist Church of New York called Harry Emerson Fosdick to succeed the liberal Cornelius Wolfkin, Wolfkin as pastor. Uh, though ordained as a Baptist, uh, Fosdick previously had been preaching the preaching minister at New York's first Presbyterian church until coming under investigation by the local presbytery for his liberal doctrinal views. Fosdick hoped that the autonomous nature of the Baptist churches would provide greater freedom for advocating modernist positions. Fosdick differed most fundamentally with the Baptist principle, not over female pastors, but open membership. Whether a professing believer can be admitted to membership in a Baptist church apart from being baptized as a believer. As a pastor, Fosdick had openly expressed his disdain for the Baptist confessionalism, insisting that baptism was altogether an individual affair, and he could not have cared less about uh, whether baptism was by immersion or sprinkling. So Park Avenue's decision to call Fosdick to the uh, church on a set the church on a collision course with conservatives in the Northern Baptist Convention, who argued that Fosdick's practice of open communion uh, put the church outside of the doctrinal alignment with the convention. They were clearly correct. So now he goes on to describe that the eventually the Northern Baptist Church succumbed to uh, that what was prompted by Fosdick and uh, so in time lost its way. And so it gives a good uh, history here. Uh, so he ends up by saying the differences between the Northern and Southern Baptist uh, conventions over the past hundred years can be explained in many ways, but they cannot be explained apart from the question of confessionalism and the need for doctrinal fidelity. The one rejected confessionalism while the other embraced it. One hundred years later, we have, have we learned anything. So uh, Caleb in uh, this article says that the, the, um, Baptists had a sense of a confession, uh, which then bound uh, the churches together, uh, because it did it does by its its own definition include as well as exclude, and the Northern Baptist Church chose one direction, the Southern Baptist another, and according to Morrell, uh, the you know the we see the results, and of course the Southern Baptists recently have also been struggling once again with that same question. So I guess every hundred years, you, the matter comes up again. And so what Harry Reader said in his article, so that's article number nine, when you get your list tomorrow, uh, and then this number 10, uh, they sort of need to be read in tandem uh, to say that here's some principles and here is a real live experiment uh, that and historical event that took place. You might call 
this, uh, you know, what they, what what we are seeing historically, you might call it something like a slippery slope, Dominic. I don't know. Ooh, ooh. So okay, mark that in the when we said that. <laughs> uh, 59, 59 minutes somewhere. Okay. All right. Uh, we like to say that, don't we? Oh, um, at least once an episode. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So. But uh, th- this is interesting history just to look over the last hundred years is a microcosm of really what the church has gone through in every generation. The issues may have been different, but you look back to the very first century. Paul had to deal with folks who were already departing from the faith. Uh, he had to confront the uh, waywardness and the sort of sloppy way the church ran, let's say in Corinth, and look at what all he says in that letter. I mean, if there was ever a church that was where confusion was there, his letter expresses that. And he was trying to bring order because he was not trying to wound the people. He was trying to bring order into that church. And the same thing in the second century, in the third and the fourth and fifth, all the way to the 21st. So the basically is, is Satan's always at work trying to upset the plan of God for the church and its mission uh, in this world and its purpose. And uh, so we always have to be on the alert. And it's not uh, it's it's not this scary thing saying that there's a red under every bed kind of during the Cold War. It's made us basically in a, an affirmative, proactive way of saying, what is it that we need to uh, believe? And then that's what we hold to and that's what we confess. So uh, Paul, that I think is important for the church of this age to learn from history so we don't go down any slippery slope. Absolutely, I totally okay. agree. Okay, well good. Well, uh, that gives you to the end of our top 10 articles on the Aquila Report and Week of Review. As uh, we said at the very beginning, you will get your top 10 list tomorrow on June 27, 2023, and you'll be able to uh, click through and read the articles, uh, suggest you know things, maybe forward to other folks, have some discussion with friends and small groups and hopefully it will be beneficial to you in your own christian life and christian walk and just have a, a sort of a larger maybe thousand five thousand foot ten thousand foot perspective on what's happening in people's lives and in the church uh, the mission of the church and uh, somewhat grasp you know how important it is to be a part of a faithful assembly of god's people and so we appreciate you listening and uh, thank you for reading the Aquila Report. Share it with others so that we might uh, grow together and understand what God wants for us. And until we see you next time or hear you next time, uh, may the Lord bless you.